Hi guys, welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will. We got Brian with us today. What's up, heretics? And you guys know what we do here. You, we help you escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of, of course, always challenge the status quo, which always needs challenging. It does, it's a thing. So um, with that being said, do not forget to like and subscribe to the channel. As always, uh, if you listen to Apple or on Spotify, leave us, leave us a five-star review. That would be great. Um, and if you're going to leave us a one-star, you guys know what the requirement is. Roast us. Like, Make if you it hate spicy. Us, Make it as saucy as possible. I don't want to see one star, weak one star reviews. There's nothing that drives me more crazy than it's like, oh, dad, these guys suck. I'm like, oh, come on. At least you could do is like call me a heretical Pelagian and that I'm going to burn. You will green. share it if you leave a good one star review. We will. We actually will. We do post them on our Instagram. So, anyway, with that being said, folks, uh, we do have a special guest with us tonight. Um, we have none other than the one and the only Patrick Miller with Truth Over Tribe. We've already been chatting for a few minutes before the show. He is absolutely awesome, and it's cool because we actually share a very similar mission uh, amongst how our ministries operate and the way we think. Now, uh, granted, I think we land in some probably different areas, but actually our mission is the same, which is really, really cool, uh, and uh, something that it, we need more of nowadays. So with that being said, Patrick, how are you doing today? Oh man, I'm doing great. I am already thinking about the one star review I'm going to leave only in hopes that I'm going to make your Facebook page. I mean, it's going to be good. Uh, and I'm pretty I'm sure my name is Patrick M. So you will know it was from me. If <laughs> we will. We, I, we forgot to mention the fact that those who leave one star reviews, we also hire hitmen for. That's what we use all the Patreon money for. <laughs> all right. I'll change my very Apple low name, budget. I'm, I'm not up on it. <laughs> very good. That's nice. Um, so so anyway, um, I'm really glad we were able to set this up. Um, your scheduler kept reaching out to us. And man, that guy is persistent because I am forgetful. And yes, I, I was just like, oh my goodness, I kept forgetting to talk to Brian. And I was like, here's my cell phone. Let's just text because this email thing is not is not working for me. Our, our executive producer is is the dog that can catch the car. If you tell him to do it, he's going to catch it. So uh, he, he is he is persistent. He's the man. Dan the man. <laughs> Yeah, I clearly and I, so I finally gave him my cell phone number and he was just on top of it. I was like, all right, this works. So anyhow, with that being said, you are one of two hosts of Truth Over Tribe, right? Yeah. And so yeah. With, so if you guys are um, you guys do this Truth Over Tribe podcast, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what the podcast is about? And I think you guys even wrote a book. So I'd love to hear all that real quick. You just tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am a pastor in flyover country, Missouri, Columbia, Missouri. Flagship university of the state is located there, which makes us a really unique place because Missouri is a, well, now pretty much Republican state. So you've got a red state, and uh, Columbia, being a college town, is a blue dot in that red state. And that means that at our church, The Crossing, it has always been full of cross-cutting, politically diverse relationships. And so we have, from the start, when this thing began, we've had to have people worship alongside one another who did not vote for the same person, be in the same small group with someone who didn't share their political ideology. And all of a sudden, 2016 and then even bigger watershed moment being 2020, it was becoming increasingly difficult for us to hold together this broad coalition of people who shared Jesus in common, shared our theology in common. I mean, I 10 years ago, people wanted to ask me why we baptize infants. I mean, I would die and go to heaven if people just asked me why we baptize infants, because that's easy compared to what we're being asked now. Everybody wants our cultural take 
on all the hot issues. And actually, they, they don't want our take. They want Tucker Carlson's take or they want the New York Times take. They don't want Jesus's take. And so that really drove us to say, we've got to disciple people. We've got to help them think uh, theologically about their politics, uh, not partisanly about their part politics. And part of that means emphasizing unity, that what we have in Christ is far more important than what separates us. And so that idea is what really uh, created the podcast Truth Over Tribe. And we're not very creative people. So we also wrote a book called Truth Over Tribe, uh, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. Uh, and that's available on Amazon <laughs> in the podcast and all the places, whatever. I mean, we're not making any money off the book. So, I, But the, the heart of the book and the heart of what we're trying to do at the end of the day is help the church set down its weapons, love one another so that we can be a light to the world. That, that That's it. That's all we want. That's awesome. I, I, I completely for that mission because that's what we noticed too, especially like you said, the watershed moment really was 2020. Oh, yeah. um, mm -hmm. I was a lead pastor in the middle of 2020, but but where I was choosing to step down to tr make a transition. And oddly enough, that's when the COVID hit and I was actually on sabbatical and Brian- I'm uh, so mad at you. I know. Was a, <laughs> he was a deacon at the church and he's like, hey, what are we doing? And I was like, I don't know. I'm on sabbatical. He's like, look, man, we were not expecting a worldwide pandemic for when you went on sabbatical. So you are going to answer yeah. this question. That was not in the agreement. <laughs> so uh, you didn't you didn't read the pandemic clause, did you? I, did, I did not. Here. <laughs> so with that being said. I think it is important for us to make sure we have these conversations of how do we actually navigate that? Because luckily for me, where when I was a lead pastor doing a lot of that, I was in a very rural area, which means that they were all very, very country uh, country folks. They were also very conservative. So they all saw eye to eye on a lot of this stuff. I've called the entire church, uh, literally, I called the entire church, every person and asking what they would like, and they all gave the same answer. It was absolutely hilarious. And it made it really easy. And then when I shifted churches, I noticed that too, where at the new church, uh, there was more of a divide and they were doing everything they can, the pastors and the elders there mm -hmm. to keep the people together. And so I think that what you're talking about is actually really important. And I, I really appreciate the mission because even though we call ourselves the church split, believe it or not, we actually do want people to be able to work together despite their differences. Yeah, I, I think it's critical that the church works together despite our differences. I mean, I know you guys believe in this, that we're going to show the world who Jesus is if we can actually love each other. And it turns out if that love is just a bunch of uh, homogenous social units loving each other, like, hey, we all got together, all of us, you know, 50 to 70 year old white people who are working on farms or 20 to 30 year old hipsters living inside the city. Like there's nothing <laughs> impressive about that. You know, what's impressive right. is when you bring people together who are diverse, not just in their skin tones, but diverse in their ideas, diverse in how they see yeah. the world. And they say, I love you despite the differences that we have. I mean, think about Jesus disciples. He's got like a guerrilla warrior and a, and a sympathizer with Rome. I mean, these guys, how in the world did they ever get along? And yet it's a beautiful picture that that's exactly what I think compelled the world to be drawn towards Jesus was their difference and their love across difference. That actually is so funny. I use that example all the time. Like, look, if Matthew, the tax collector, can get along with the zealot and work with Jesus, we can do the same. Yeah. <laughs> so meanwhile, people don't even want to work together. If you guys have a slight, uh, like you mentioned, uh, people asking you about baptizing babies as because you're, you're uh, from a Presbyterian background. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it's like, 
man, you people flip out over just dunking babies, let alone uh, some of the <laughs> serious things that they were facing in the first century, right? So it is one of those yeah. uh, things I think we do definitely need to learn how to do that. And I think that is exemplified through our leaders and how we're going to interact as a church and keeping the main thing the main thing, because really it is about the Lamb of God. It's not about a donkey. It's not about an elephant. Um, and not say that there isn't truth, right? That's not saying there's not some truth like in that somebody might be advocating for in a political party, but just don't confuse that political party for solely 100% the truth, right? No one wants to go to Republican Baptist Church. <laughs> well, some do. <laughs> <laughs> True. Actually, there are some people who want to go to that church. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, with that being said, we just have a few questions for you. Luckily, you guys even have a little packet that makes us real fun and easy, and it helps keep me structured because if anyone knows oh, yeah. me that's hard shut up man <laughs> uh, i'm like an epileptic octopus i'm just like everywhere and seizing at all times um but all right that's so good image yeah <laughs> you'll never be able to un unsee that it's a good one someone well, meme that please <laughs> i can someone meme that that'd be good you, you guys know who you are in the audience you can do it do it so how did your experience as leaders by the as uh, a politically diverse church actually show the need for the book that you guys have written here truth over tribe and even the podcast yeah i mean i think it goes back to some of what i was saying which was uh the experience that we had inside of the church uh having a politically diverse church and then realizing how much harder it was to hold together and you know re reflecting on kind of the post 2020 reality I mean, first of all let's just say there's no shockers here it turns out if you isolate people for months on end and they all become pretty mentally unhealthy and they start living highly online lives where they're divided up into algorithmic echo chambers where they can rage against whichever man they hate. And then you bring them back to church. It's going to be an unpleasant experience. And then, Hey, let's just add to that George Floyd. Let's add to that a election year. Let's add to that uh, the election fraud debate. Let's add like you just keep piling all of these things on and you wonder how any church is holding together. And what I think is so fascinating right now is, is, is you know, if you look at maybe 20 years ago, the seeker-sensitive movement, the, the approach behind that, that movement was essentially, and I'm, I'm not trying to, to dog on it, but it was, uh, it was look, we, we want to we attract people who don't feel a need for church. And so we're going we're gonna to remove all obstructions. We don't want to have controversial topics discussed here because that's going to keep people out the doors. And there, there was a real beauty to that. Right? They, they, they actually brought people in who might not have come in if they were talking about you know, abortion every weekend or whatever it was. Uh, but the challenge was that they didn't disciple people in their politics. They discipled people in how to read the Bible and how to pray and how to maybe think about some theological ideas. But they didn't help people think through their political reality. And the mind abhors a vacuum. And so what gets sucked up into that, again, is the media environment, which is insane right now, that people are living in. And, and, so, and so for that reason, what's interesting is right now, the churches that are growing the fastest are the ones who are really caring for that seeker-sensitive model. It's almost the inverse. <laughs> like if you want to grow a church really fast, I've got a great plan for you. Throw your MAGA flag out front, throw your American flag out front, or throw your rainbow flag out front. You don't do both those at the same time. That's confusing. Um, <laughs> but, but pick the right flag, throw it out front, go full bore synchronization with one party or the other, and you'll be able to grow a mega church because that used to be an obstruction to people coming in. Now it's what people want. They want to live in a political reality constantly where their pastor agrees with them constantly and agrees with their 
particular views. So holding together a church that is not syncretized to the Christian nationalist right or the progressive left, that is really, really hard to do because everything in the average person's life is pulling that their, their, their theology and their thinking out of shape. And you've got, what, one hour every Sunday to resist? So this is, I have a lot of empathy for pastors, of which I am one, but this is really hard. This is really exhausting. It, it, pushing back against this is, is immensely difficult. Right. And not all pastors also like because certain pastors are like, okay, you know what? I have no problem staying the course. Uh, in fact, I, I thrive in the trenches. You know, that's kind of my personality. I'm one of those people that I thrive in the trenches. So, you know, oh man, all these people are asking these questions. They're upset about this. I'm like, ooh, put me in the middle of the firing line. I enjoy this. All right. Gah, 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 gah. You know, like I could, I, we'll go all day with it. Uh, and you're kind of built the same way. Yeah. You, you thrive in the trenches. I really do like the like the debate. <laughs> so, but not but not in like a way where it's like toxic. But we just like that's where we like to thrive and discuss. But then I think about the pastors who are like, not everyone's built that way. Some people are. Hey, I, I'm built different. Uh, the, the idea though is the like some of them are more empathetic and they oh, yeah. don't want to constantly be put. Like some of them are just like very loving shepherds and they don't want to constantly be having to deal with the next controversial issue in the culture. That's not something that attracts them. It's not something that they're there for. And I feel for those pastors, especially because all our culture is now, my personality was dunked on hard uh, about 10, 10 years ago, even. Now it's to the point where everyone's like, oh yeah, we want more of that. And I, and I purposely go to a church that's less that way because I don't want mm. that to be overtaken, right? I'm like, no, we need to be well-rounded here just because this is my personality doesn't mean that's what we should always be and i think of these pastors who are loving and who are very kind and, she and shepherding and they're in tough spots because they're like i don't like this i don't want this i just want to talk about jesus i want to see lives changed for the gospel and i really honestly don't want to be keep having to deal with the next controversial issue and because you and i again you and I like to discuss those yeah. but in a way like, oh, what do you think is the best way to handle this? And we compare the scriptures and, you know, the moral ethics of X, Y, and Z to try to find a conclusion because we find it interesting. But not everyone does. Well, and you've talked about mm -hmm. this in your blog too, about how when you have, when you're a pastor and your income is tied to roughly the amount of people that are going to church, and if you have to get into a more controversial topic because people are fighting, you risk splitting that church, you risk losing that income, your actual job and your well-being for your family is at risk. So there's there's a tendency to move to whatever the majority is good with. And yeah, let's just let's just have this echo chamber because then no one's going to get mad and leave. Right. Well, then also because of the tribalization. Sorry, Patrick, I, I don't mean I don't want to steal all your thunder. But the other problem with that tribalization is if a pastor is asked a controversial topic, all right, and that's okay, pastors, that's sometimes that's our job, we have to talk about something controversial, but then the pastor's like, okay, but when I give this answer, this could actually cause a mild riot if I give my honest opinion here. And so yeah. then it puts pastors in a really nasty position where they're like, well, all the people want are my opinions right now on controversial topics. At the same time, though, the more I give that opinion, the more it tears my church apart because people can't actually handle the fact that they might disagree with their pastor on something. Well, how do you handle that, Patrick? So how do you handle that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 I think the size and context of your church matters. You know, we're, we're lucky, frankly, to be at a very large church, which means that to a certain degree, we can weather having a chunk of people leave. 
uh, because it doesn't affect that. I mean, obviously people leaving affects the bottom line of a church's giving or whatever else. But at the end of the day, I, I think as pastors, we, we, we have to choose faithfulness over, mm-hmm. uh, fruitfulness in terms of fruitful giving, like <laughs> not, right. not fruitfulness in people's lives. And I think faithfulness looks like helping them wrestle with the challenging questions that they're facing. Um, now, I think there's uh, gentle ways to do that. I think there's uh, ways that allow space for process. I don't think that you need to get into the pulpit and give your uh, political position on every single issue, in part because your job is to preach the gospel and teach the Bible. And you know what? There are a lot of political issues that the Bible can speak some wisdom into, but there's some things where actually maybe it's it's not that crystal clear, you know? <laughs> and, and so you, you kind of got to know that as a pastor. But I mean, let, let me just like give some practical examples of why this is so challenging. I mean, I, I've sat across the table from a woman who told me that she was losing her faith because Donald Trump uh, lost the election and the election had been stolen from him. And she didn't understand how a good God could allow the election of Donald Trump to be stolen from him and from the American people. Now, how do you respond to that question? I'm losing my faith. I'm, I'm crying because the election was stolen. Now, that's like kind of a crazy, weird example, but it illustrates where I think a lot of pastors are coming from, where it's, it's not only... Uh, I, I'm worried that a bunch of people are going to leave my church if I say, uh, hey, uh, get, the election wasn't stolen. There's there's really no evidence that that actually happened, and you need to stop listening to Newsmax so much, maybe. Um, it's, it's really, really hard to have that conversation when you've got a crying person. So, of course, that's not what I said to her, right? Like, I just had to go to a theology of God's sovereignty over hard things and not correct her and say, hey, are, are, you might be wrong. You know, it, so again, like this is this is the multifaceted problem and challenge that we face. And, and you take it, by the way, from both sides. I've sat across the table from someone who was talking to me about police violence against black people. And my co-host said, hey, there's actually a study that just came out of Harvard that suggests that actually that's not uh, as much of a thing as you seem to think it's a thing. And she said, well, I can find my own study. <laughs> he goes, well, it was done by a, a black professor. I, I can find my own information on the internet. It's like, okay, well, it, this, is, this is where we live. Neither side believes in capital T truth. Neither side. They are both illiberal. Both sides believe that whoever has the power wins. And that's why both sides are playing identity politics, which is simply this. If you look like me or you think like me, you have the right to rule and the right to be wealthy and to the right to speak and the right to be in power. That is what both sides fundamentally agree on. And that's fundamentally illiberal. And that's not a society that I want to live in. Dang, that was a that was good. <laughs> but no, it's true because I mean, you're right. It's, it's continually. I've seen that, too, where. You, people don't believe, like you said, in capital T truth. A good friend of mm-hmm. ours, Jordan, he's been on the channel a few times. One of the things uh, that he he always says is like, when someone proves you wrong, you you don't get mad, don't get upset, say thank you. Mm-hmm. you yes, care, <laughs> you should care about the truth more than anything. Uh, Put that ego aside, man, just Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> and we and I was like that, and that's so true. So there's been plenty of times where we all are discussing, and you have to understand that me. Brian and Jordan are probably some of the most hard-headed people you'll ever meet. <laughs> and when we get in a room and we're trying to figure something out, it's passionate, it's intense. Then at the end, sometimes one of us will prove somebody wrong and we just go, oh, okay, that's actually a really good point. Yeah. Appreciate you. And it's one of those, and oh, that was not a skill. I will say this. That was not a skill that came to me naturally in any way, shape, or form. 
is because you have to say that you learn to set the ego aside. And then what all this comes down mm -hmm. to what you're saying is pride, 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 and it can come back in super easily. Yes. Um, it does not, it does not take much for pride to set in. And then suddenly, boom, you're right, you're, you're back to where you came from. And you, now you think I, str I struggle with one person like you or me, right? It's a struggle for myself. Now combine that with like two, 300 people in a building, uh, called a church <laughs> and mm -hmm. it's ripe for disaster, right? Cause we are, we yeah. are sinners. That's the reality. But, but Christians so. should have the 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 epistemic humility to admit that they do not know everything, that they do not have the corner on the truth. First reason being, we were once lost in lies and deception, and we know that Christ came and rescued us from those lies and those deceptions, which does not mean that now I have uh, total, you know, I'm like, I've like galaxy brained all of reality. And I know all truth because Jesus has saved me, you know, <laughs> Jesus nice. said there was things that he didn't even know, right. He didn't even galaxy brain when he was going to come back. So at the end of the day, there are so many things that I don't know. And I should be able with all of my beliefs to, to place them on a scale of one to 10, one being, I'm not very certain and 10 being, I am absolutely 100%. There is no evidence that could ever convince me otherwise certain. We should be able to place our beliefs there. And where we place those should be commensurate with our expertise, with how much time and effort and energy we've put into understanding them. And, and I think the point that Jordan made is exactly right. If someone with more expertise or different information that we haven't heard comes along and gives it to us, we should say thank you. I, you gave me what I needed to 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 realize that I was wrong, and I don't like being wrong. So you've actually helped me today. And so this is a tactic that I often take when I'm talking to people who are just stuck in a particular belief that I disagree with. I just say, hey, scale of 1 to 10, tell me where you lie on this. And if I talk to someone who gives me a 9 or 10 on something, I know they are past the point of convincing. And if I'm not totally sure, I will often ask them, is there any evidence I could give you that could change your mind? And you would be shocked the amount of people who say, no, no, not really. Like, 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 I just made a comment. Clearly, I don't believe that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, just like I don't think the election was stolen from the Democrat Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think those are real stories. There's actually a lot of evidence you could show me that could convince me otherwise, right? Like, I, I'm probably a six on those things. I, I feel certain, but I'm not absolutely certain. I, I don't know. That's a great example. But there's a lot of people who are 100% on it was stolen, it wasn't stolen, absolutely. And there's nothing you could ever show me that would convince me otherwise. And and that's where, good gosh, I mean, we're, we're, we're stuck. Because how do you, with again, without persuasion, there is only coercion. All right. Oh, that's a good, that's a really good quote. I'm going to quote that one. Okay. <laughs> uh, but the other thing is, is, so when you're mentioning that, like one of the things I was thinking is, when it comes to like epistemic certainty and are you willing to change your mind? It actually reminds me of even like conversations I've had with people who are, who are even proclaimed atheists, right? Okay. Yeah, that's is exactly there, what I was thinking. <laughs> is there any, and, and actually studies have shown this, like they have done polls. If someone was able to prove to you without a shadow of doubt that the Christian God exists, would you worship him? And the answer was always no. So then it comes down to, it's not really about evidence then, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and if that's you, now think about it. If that's you on some topic, some any other topic, because it's funny, because Christians are like, <laughs> dumb atheists. Stupid atheists. Yeah, dumb. <laughs> and, uh, but what's funny is that Christians don't realize that they have a number of topics they're the same way about. And 100%. you got to- I mean, I'll be honest, I challenge myself regularly. I have friends of mine that are uh, Unitarians, for example. I'm not obviously Unitarian. I'm an Orthodox Christian, so I believe in the Trinity. But one thing is, is like, I ask them questions. 
I want to know their position. And it's funny because we've been told before that we shouldn't even be friends with these people. And I was like, well, how am I, how am I ever going to have a conversation to learn anything about them if I'm not willing to hear them out? Uh, because here's my thing, even though I'm pretty certain, you know, I'm over there like, yeah, I'm certain on this. I have a strong doctrinal position on this. I need to still ask myself, what mm -hmm. if they are able to prove me wrong? And if my yeah, position exactly can stand, right. right? If my position can stand and it's true, I shouldn't be concerned or scared. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Right. And if my position can't stand, maybe either I need to one, research more of my position so I can be more firmly planted Two, change my position. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't, you shouldn't have to be scared again, either way. If you are, if you're proven wrong, great. You just learn something new. If you think that you're right, but you just don't have the proper facts, go find the facts. <laughs> mm -hmm. Either way, truth should be the friend of the Christian. Uh, Paul literally says we, that church is the pillar of truth. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and of course, we're going to have different areas of certainty, right? Like, right. Uh, for me, like, when people say, hey, what, what are the things that you're most certain about outside of matters of, you know, personal history? But I mean, like, if someone said, like, how certain are you that, that you were born on October 7th, 1987? I couldn't give it a 10 because at least three <laughs> different things are possible. Thing number one, my parents lied to me. Uh, thing number two, my parents were in a giant conspiracy with the doctors to uh, falsify my birth records. Um, number three, everyone accidentally made it an error and put the wrong day on there. Okay. So there's, there, there, now those are outrageously ridiculous scenarios that don't happen, but I, I can't even give my own birthday a 10. Okay. <laughs> so if, if that's the case, there's, there's just, there's just really for me, nothing that goes all the way up there. Like the things that are highest for me outside of those personal facts are, is frankly the resurrection. I give the resurrection really high marks, but it's simply because I've done so much stinking reading and work on it that when I talk to people who don't believe it, I'm like, all right, this is going to be painful for you, bro. <laughs> but like, We'll go there. I, 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 I'm going to be really hard to convince, and there's a good chance that you're not going to have more information than, than me on this. And I've, and I've read both sides. And, man, if you actually read both sides, I don't know how you couldn't believe this guy rose from the dead. <laughs> right. And that's exactly – so that's like my thing where I'm like there's certain things I've studied out that I have a very strong uh, view on. Like one of my favorites is when someone sits down and says, hey, Will – why do you even believe in Christianity is true? And I'm like, how much time you got? Get ready for info dump. <laughs> yeah, like I'm an apologetics nerd. It's all I do. Like I literally just, that's all I study. Uh, pretty they much that in theology. What'd you say? They instantly yeah. regret asking you. <laughs> yeah, it's like they're like three hours in, their eyes are glazed over. <laughs> like I believe just so you'll shut up. <laughs> We're slowly inching towards the door, you know, about to pull yeah. the fire alarm. They're searching for it. Is it somewhere <laughs> over here? They've been playing with their keys for 10 minutes. Uh. <laughs> well, I, want, I want to ask you, Patrick, just kind of switch gears a little bit. So obviously with your title, you're kind of saying that tribe, tribalism, bad. And yeah. um, how do you distinguish that between just what we describe as America, right, as a group of individuals with, with shared goals and shared values? How do you kind of distinguish the good of that part with the bad of tribalism? Yeah, that's a great question, and uh, it's it's actually the thing I, I both love and hate about our podcast name. You know, when we say truth over tribe, I, I think what we're trying to get at is the notion that when it comes to truth, truth matters more than what your tribe says, and that really matters because you are biologically hardwired to be tribal. And I could get into a theology of why I think that might actually be the case and why God designed us this way, but you are biologically hardwired for it. 
there was a researcher named Karsten DeDrew. I mean, there's so many studies out there, and I, I, I can, this is like you, to say, hey, ask me why I'm a Christian. I'm like, hey, let me tell you about tribalism studies. Um, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go real deep. It, there's this researcher, and, and I don't know if you know what oxytocin is. Um, it's the love drug. It's a chemical that's released in your brain when a mom sees her baby for the first time. They both release oxy, oxytocin. It, it bonds people. It creates goodwill between people. It's what you see when you see your beloved and you love her. It's what you're missing when the relationship feels dry. It's what's released in the brains of, of soldiers when they're marching together in synchronicity. It's what's released when you go to the rave and everybody's taking ecstasy and going crazy. It's what's released when you're in worship and you're singing alongside people. That's why it's called the love drug, because it unites. It, it creates this uh, mutual love between people. And so Carson DeDrew had this wild idea. Maybe we could get rid of tribalism, you know, one tribe hating another tribe, but just pumping oxytocin into the water and everybody would love each other. And so he does this test and there's a control group of men who, who get no oxytocin. And then there's a different group of men who they swab some oxytocin in their nose. And lo and behold, the group that gets the oxytocin is much more self-sacrificial, much more generous with their resources, much kinder with one another, much closer to one another. There's just a catch. They were also more antagonistic towards outsiders. They were also more willing to take from outsiders. They were also more willing to hurt outsiders. And so it turns out that the love drug is not the love drug. It's the tribal drug. We are hardwired for this. Now, if you think that there was a world that, that, that uh, there wasn't going to be any sin, there was going to be no division, then what could be better than oxytocin, this thing that unites us together chemically in our brains? But we don't get to live in that world. We have to live on this side of the fall and on this side of the fall it metastasizes into this tribalism and so I, this is a long roundabout way of answering your question the answer to your question is i don't think that anyone is not tribal i think that everybody is in tribes i think everybody chooses tribes and that's the key is which tribe will you choose to identify yourself most closely with the thing that sets apart the jesus tribe from every other tribe well two things thing number one it's the only tribe out there that invites everybody in there's no skin color requirements. There's no sexuality requirements. There's no uh, ideology requirements. Now, I'm not saying you're going to say the same once you get in, but everybody is welcomed into this tribe, okay? Number two, it's the only tribe which is called to love those outside of its tribe. In fact, at times, it seems to be called to put the interest of those outside the tribe before its own interests. So it is literally the anti-tribal tribe. Other tribes say you have to be like me to join, and we hate all the outsiders. Jesus says everybody's welcome, and we love outsiders. And so if you have to be tribal, you have to pick a tribe, why don't you pick the one tribe that actually brings wholeness, healing, shalom, and unity to the world? So my answer to the question is, you're right. We can't not be tribal in a real sense. The only thing we can do is pick the right tribe, put our energies into the right place. Right. And that's actually, uh, I've been doing a study through Deuteronomy recently um, as I've been going through the Torah. And I, the amount of times it's like, and care for the sojourner, for, they, for you are sojourners in Egypt. Hmm. Hey, if an Egyptian comes, instead of being like, kill him, they enslaved you for 400 years. He's like, take them in for you are a sojourner <laughs> in Egypt. And that's what like, set them apart. Yeah. Yeah, don't set yeah. apart. Welcome them, and, and that's such a that is such a different mindset than the rest of the world. And I think if, and most faithful Christians can even say that when you're working in the secular workforce, and let's say you are actually living consistently with your life, that people actually acknowledge the fact that they're usually like, "Wow, yeah, that person's different. They're more selfless." 
they think of others more. And like, I've worked with people, I, I had it today, I was working with a client and it was funny because I, you, you could sometimes pick it up, pick up on it just in your interaction. And so I decided to go basically throw out there, yeah, I'll send it to I do ministry and they go, oh really, what church? And I was like, I knew it, I knew it, I could feel it in the room, you're of my tribe. And uh, you know what I mean? And that was that whole idea. And it was funny because yeah. they were all like what they call full gospel types. So I think they're more charismatic in the world than I am. But at the same time, I was like, you're of my Jesus tribe. And they got excited with that. And just because we were picking up on a similarity in the room, even though we weren't, we weren't talking about Jesus, we weren't talking about God, we weren't talking about mm -hmm. politics, oddly enough, that was not what set that unity off. It was, mm -hmm. it was the general, uh, you could say the demeanor of the room. So I think that's a really good point. And I, yeah, that's what Christianity is. We welcome all other people to be part of our tribe. And we as a tribe need to take care of other people who are not part of our tribe. That's a, that's a fantastic yeah. way to put that. So yeah, uh, just like every, I, I say all the time, you know, everyone's like, oh, you're biased. Well, Will, you're a Christian, you're biased. Of course I'm biased. Everyone's biased. Just like everyone's part of a tribe. The question is, are you, what are you gonna be biased to? The truth? You should be biased through the truth. That's, by the way, you should. <laughs> also, I'll be remiss if I don't point out that your oxytocin example experiment reminded me of the TV show Firefly. And I don't know what the, whether tried to make everyone docile and then everyone got super aggressive. I was like, hey, that's where the show's from. Oh my goodness. Did you just make a Firefly reference? I made reference? a Firefly reference. I, You're I, welcome, I, audience. This is why we're friends. <laughs> I know. Oh, it's so good. Uh, Dude, I, sorry, I never got Fox. past the first episode of Firefly. All right, this, this interview is over. Now you have homework for this tonight. interview is done. <laughs> no, it's, it's it. not. It's not. It's not for trying. I, th I think the problem is I waited too long, and 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 now I'm like going back to this early 2000s show, and it's just so early 2000s, and I have no nostalgia <laughs> for it, but I didn't watch it in the moment, so I can't get myself <laughs> over it. I want to get over it. I love sci-fi, but you know what? What do you do? Well, now I'm going to be tribal toward you right now because yeah. I'm not okay with this. This is some tribalism going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Sorry, I took us way off track, but I was yeah, like, that's all track. I was thinking when you were saying that example. It's only like six to eight episodes or something in the first season. Then watch Serenity, the movie yeah. that finishes it. It's fine. It's, I watched that first. I have I seen Serenity. Scene. See, okay. I saw that when I was when I was in, in at the time, and I didn't realize there was a TV show. I mean, this is like back when you had to go get a VHS to watch a right. TV show. I remember you know, that. and it'd be like old. <laughs> one season was like thirty VHSs of this season, and you know, it's like that's like a hundred bucks a blockbuster. Man, I wasn't made out of money. So <laughs> I, I get that. No, because I watch I watched Serenity. I remember being so lost and confused watching that movie as a teenager and yeah. then and I you realized find it was a show the first. finale <laughs> of a show that they canceled. So anyway, he Woo! didn't think he was going to talk about Firefly tonight. We just surprised him. So yeah, that's for. a good times. All right. So uh, a couple other questions. So we kind of touched on this earlier, but I would like you to flesh it out a little bit. So how do you see actually like tribalism producing anxiety and uh, inauthenticity across the country and especially in churches? Well, you know, I mean, p part of me would say just open up our eyes and we see anxiety absolutely everywhere. I, I, I you see anxiety. So I mean, let me give an example, just just a little story. There was a Jeopardy contestant. I think his name was Kelly Donahue. And, uh, you know, he's kind of a 
awkward nerdy dude and he's on jeopardy right so that's who he was and after every episode he'd hold up these little hand signs and after his third victory he holds up this really awkward looking number three and he's smiling and the episode ends but there's this group of elite highly intelligent ex jeopardy contestants who see it and they know what he's done he has held up a white supremacist hand signal and so they reach out to the show and they say you've got to pull this guy you've got to take him down and they and they say no what, what are you talking about that i don't think that's what was happening they, they try to rip this guy apart in public and he comes out public and says hey i am i am totally against white supremacy i i wasn't holding up a white supremacist hand signal i'm so sorry that's not what i was doing they start trolling his page and they're finding all this evidence of him being a white supremacist he was a trump supporter and even worse a lover of Frank Sinatra. And you know, that's, <laughs> oh that was proof. And, and because they're so convinced, they, they, they reach out to the Anti-Defamation League, which is you know about as quick to, to file a lawsuit about racism as any other organization in the country. And the Anti-Defamation League reaches back out to them and says, actually, we reviewed the footage. After his first victory, he held up a one. After his second victory, he held up a two. After his third victory, he held up a three. And by the way, that's not even the racist hand signal. It looks different than that. And this group wouldn't believe them. They said that the ADL was gaslighting them. So <laughs> well, just looking at the story, where where is the anxiety? Let's think about where the anxiety is. Well, there's the anxiety of the attacked. So people like Kelly Donahue who feel anxiety because they're being attacked for their views, sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly. But for many people, the anxiety of the attack has more to do with fear. They, Unlike Kelly, they haven't actually been attacked. They just hear these stories and think, that's going to be me at work, right? It's like when I was a little kid, this dog was chasing me. I was terrified. I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. My, my mom runs outside to, to save me, and then she pets the dog. It was like a Pomeranian or something, okay? It wasn't a threat <laughs> to my life. And so fear is great when you've got a wolf chasing you. It's not so great when it's a Pomeranian. And that's the thing. The, the, the attack, we're not all Kelly Donahue. That's one kind of fear. But then there's also the fear of the group, the anxiety of the crusaders, the people who are anxious because if we don't get justice, if we don't do what's right here, what will happen? What, where will the world go? You know, they, they, they have so much anxiety over justice and everything having to be righteous and precise. It's, it's puritanical is, is what it really is. It's pharisaical. And they have that kind of pharisaical, uh, puritanical, uh, again, anxiety around getting things right. And then I'll tell you what, there were other people in that group who spoke to the New York Times who didn't say anything, but they disagreed with the whole thing. And that's the anxiety of the bystanders, the people who know this is wrong, but I'm afraid to say something. Because if I say something, people are going to come after me. I'll be the next person in their crosshairs. And so I, I could keep listening it out, but I mean, those are at least three forms of anxiety that I think are just running through our, our entire cultural moment. The anxiety of the crusader, the, the anxiety of the hunted, and the anxiety of the bystander. That is very true. Um, as someone, and I'm sure you get this too, as someone with a platform, with a podcast even, I mean, you just know one off offshot comment can just bring a lot of hate, like, I can't even tell you. I, we've already been attempted canceled a few times, and it's just it's been crazy. Um, so you just I'm uncancelable now. That that's what I've decided. <laughs> oh well, you only cancelable if you let yourself be. That's the yeah. that's the yeah. thing. Um, My views so. are all out there. There's there's just I'm I, I I'm I'm not a jerk to people. I'm not mean, you know. And so you can try to cancel me, but I 
it's not going to work because I won't. I, I'm just sorry. I, I won't right. be canceled. Right. And I'm the same. Uh, we feel the same way. I hope we laugh at the face of danger. But um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Lion King reference. We're on a roll. OK. Uh, so and then also, why do you actually think so? This is actually something I'm curious about uh, your take on. Why do you think uh, there's so much politically tribalized churches in the world right now. There's a lot. I mean, let's just be honest. Our churches now are more politically, um, politically polarized than probably ever before, and now more tribalized. Why do you think that is? Well, in a lot of ways, I think it's actually a function of the anxiety that we were just describing. Mm-hmm. When you're afraid, you start living like you're in wartime. And when you start living like you're in wartime, that means you get your guns out. That means you get your swords out. That means you put up the barricades. You put up the walls. And the more embattled you feel, the more justified you feel in becoming more polarized and more aggressive. And the more that people feel anxious, the more they're actually pressed by that anxiety into the extremes. Uh, like th- that, That's the weird effect that's happening right now. So like, let me give a, a good example of this. Uh, the, the phrase Christian nationalism. So if you're if you're looking at, I mean, really just almost any writing on, on the left, not just like the far progressive left. Um, when they talk about Christian nationalism, what they seem to be describing is if you think as a Christian that you should be able to bring your beliefs and ethics into the public square, then you are a Christian nationalist. Yep. Um, <laughs> no, no, you're not. That's actually not what a Christian nationalist is. But people hear you say that and they say, well, that is me. So I guess I am a Christian nationalist. Right. And so they start looking at, you know, the accounts of people who very strongly identify with Christian nationalism. They say, I guess this is who I am. And they start feeling more embattled because they're being attacked. Your views aren't welcome in the public square. And so they start moving further and further. Right. And someone who would have never even considered Christian nationalism as a framework for uh, our, our, our political tradition are now considering it really seriously and i think it's in large part because of this anxiety and the pressure that the left put on them and of course it goes the opposite direction as well right that's just there's just a single example that I've, I've seen happen in recent days but i think that's why churches are becoming more more tribalized is because of all this anxiety and the real key here and i think the only churches that are going to weather this i don't know what's going to happen in those politically syncretized churches is is we need to be a non-anxious presence we have got to be like Daniel, who came before Nebuchadnezzar, and the Bible says, spoke with wisdom intact. We've got to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who come before Nebuchadnezzar and say, hey, we're not going to defend ourselves. But they treat him with honor. They treat him with respect. And they say, if God wants to let us live, we're going to live. That kind of level of non-anxiety is not in the church right now. And yet it's what we see them display again and again. And the, the late motif, the theme that runs throughout that entire book is, again, that God has a dominion that will not end, a kingdom that cannot be crushed. And when you know that that's the case, you can let go of this uh, entire political battle thing. Like I, I, We have a bigger battle to fight. We, Jesus doesn't want to take a job in the Oval Office. That's a demotion. He's on the throne of heaven. Are you insane? Like, why are we so stinking worried about all this stuff? America is not eternal. The kingdom of God is eternal. And when you get things into the right perspective, you just, you start, you live loosely to the powers, right? <laughs> like, I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, you start living loosely. And, 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 that, and that, I do think over time, will draw people in. But for the time being right now, 
the highly anxious, highly angry, highly combative churches are magnetizing people because like draws to like. And we're living in the most anxious time in American history. So shocker. Because that's actually the thing that I've noticed, too. And it's it's kind of sad because a lot of people seem to forget the fact that Jesus Christ is the king. The whole point is that after he resurrected and ascended on high, he was placed at the right hand of the Father. And we don't have to worry about this world because, in all honesty, as the old song says, we are just passing through. We know what's going to happen. There will be a new creation in the end. Christ is going to reign. It's going to be awesome. I don't have to be worried about today for, to, uh, for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Um, I know who I serve. And we, and I just remember there was a lady uh, that went to our old, uh, the church I was pastoring at, that she used to go to your church. And it was, this was a person who was more on the left side. And well, and during the entire um, Trump presidency, it was always complete anxiety. Always. And like, and she would say that I am so anxious right now. I am so scared of what's happening in this country. And I was like, relax. Like, wh wh why are you, why is your hope in the con in, in, in the Constitution, yeah. even like, why is your hope in the Oval Office? Why is why is that where you're placed in your hope? Now, I'm not saying politics don't matter and these social issues don't matter. But man, if you don't have your eye on that prize, uh, you're just so worldly minded and earthly minded that you think that's going to fix all your problems. What are you what are you doing? Have, have we lost our minds. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? Oh, like have. the role of social media and big tech is is playing in this kind of amplification of this anxiety, this almost social contagion of anxiety against everyone who they don't agree with? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's something I spend a lot of time thinking and, and writing about. And we have a chapter in the book on on big tech, on the loss of social capital, on the loss of truth, a lot of the themes that we're talking about here. Uh, but in that chapter on big tech, uh, we, we talk about some things that when, I, when we wrote it, it was actually a little more um, fresh. And now I think people, to some degree, are aware of the fact that, hey, you're being tracked on social media. And hey, uh, they are creating in, in um, let's just pause here for a second. What we call the algorithm is, is, is an algorithm. It's, it's artificial intelligence. It's a neural network of computer nodes that are crunching data that they collect by watching every little thing that you do on the internet for the purpose of building a digital model of you, which they can sell to advertisers because they can tell advertisers, hey, this is a warm lead. In fact, it's not just a warm lead. This is an incredibly hot lead and we know who to sell your stuff to because we know exactly who they are now when you start realizing that you have to realize you are not the customer of meta or google you are the product you are the oil that they're trying to drill and pull up out of the ground you are not a human you are a substance to be used data to be mined that is what you are and so the goal of the platforms fundamentally is to keep you on their platform so that they can mine more data out of you so that they can sell it to advertisers who you will. I mean, you don't like to think that you can be uh, controlled by advertisements and uh, AI. You can. And the way we know is because this is a um, the, one of the largest, the largest tech business in the world. You can be manipulated by these uh, algorithms and you will buy things. Now, the way that they keep you on this platform so that they can mine information out of you is by feeding you emotionally engaging content. And it turns out that there are two emotions that really drive us. One is sexual desire and the other is outrage and anger. And so that's what they began to feed people was content that the algorithm was designed. Again, the algorithm is designed to figure out what do I do to keep this person on here? Oh, I feed them misinformation and disinformation. 
that makes them outraged and angry because I see that they like that and I see that they click that and I see that they stop their scroll on their on that. I see that they like that. And, and so that's what the algorithm fed us for, I mean, really the last 10 years. It's really not just up until recently that Facebook and these organizations are trying to make some changes. Well, and it's no, it's no surprise because studies have shown even uh, what things like Instagram do to the um, integrity, the mental and emotional integrity of young girls, for example, like in their teen years. And it, it, uh, it has brought up anxiety rates, depression rates, uh, even suicide rates. And when those numbers came out, they did nothing about it because you're not a person. You're a number to these people. So that's one of the things that people need to understand. It's like just because, it, it, you know, that it's, it kind of goes to that whole, hey, I saw it on the internet, so it must be true. Uh, as I know it's become a joke, but still people seem to buy it where it's like even I, I, uh, when things come out, like certain stories have come up where we've discussed them on the podcast. When the story comes up, we're like, okay, that's just a hit piece. Let's look into it before we even talk about that story at all because yeah. anyone can write anything with any spin on it. Um, well, look, all I'm saying is if I'm talking on the phone to Will and he's got a dead car battery and he says car battery and I pull up Facebook and there's an ad for a car battery, I am not buying it from them. You are not getting my business. That's I that is way too creepy. Get out of my earpiece. You yeah. stop spying on me. Actually, the other day I was on the marketplace on Facebook and I literally was like, hmm, I wonder hot tub just to kind of kicks and giggles. I have a patio and I really want a hot tub. It's like, oh, what are those? What does a used one go for? And then like the next day I get on like Safari, I hit Safari and like, you know how it has those ads sometimes at the bottom, boom, hot tubs for sales. Like, see, that's weird. That's not okay. Yeah. What I typed in off a whim for 13 seconds, once I saw the prices were more, higher than I wanted to pay, that you're advertising these to me, that's that's just weird. Um, yeah, it's, so, but you're it's, right. it's surveillance capitalism. They, they're, they're spying on us, they're invading our privacy. And, and there's good signs, I mean, the Apple making the decision to tell you when apps are tracking you across your apps, which most people didn't realize was happening, that, that was huge. I mean, it's destroying Facebook's model because it turns out they literally track everything you do all the time, which is really, really creepy. Again, the bigger point here, though, is these, these, these systems are what now control our information. We used to have knowledge curators. They were, they were called newspaper publishers or um, t TV producers or networks. Um, they are no longer the curators of knowledge for most of us. The curator is machines. It is AI. <laughs> that is what is determining what you see. And that's where we're getting most of our information from. And again, it's not designed to do good things to you. It's designed to make money out of you. And that's really scary. And it's not just scary for polarization. It's scary because this stuff is, is going to destabilize democracy. There's an MIT tech report that showed that 19 of the top 20 Christian Facebook pages in 2021 were run by foreign troll farms. Hmm. That's over 100 million Christians. 19 of the top 20 Facebook pages were run by Iranian uh, and Chinese and Russian troll farms. And what they did on there was they just posted like the most, you know, milquetoast Christian self, like cursive Bible verses over mountain landscapes or whatever, and some C.S. Lewis quotes. But that was like nine out of 10. One out of 10 was insanity. It was misinformation. But people thought, 
well, gosh, there's 75 million people on this one group. It must be legit. So this information must be legit. And it turns out it was misinformation designed to destabilize democracy. And these social media companies did nothing and have done nothing to stop it. And, and so, again, we're, we're just moving to a scary place. <laughs> with, with artificial intelligence, the, these foreign, I mean, the next version of artificial intelligence, GPT-4, it's going to be able to create massive amounts of news stories if you just write in a little bit of false information that these people can post. And it's going to go all over these Christian pages. So, I mean, if you can't tell, I'm a little bit freaked out about some of this stuff. Um, but, but, but our news diet, our media diet, I, I keep telling pastors, I'm like, you got to get this into your, your, your application rotation is media literacy because your people don't know when what they're looking at is fake. They just, they don't, they, they have the, even millennials, like we lack the skills. Oh yeah. Well, if we knew it was fake, we probably wouldn't have had a lockdown for <laughs> nine months or whatever too. So, uh, yeah, some ah, of that stuff is just, know. Yeah, well, and I think you know, I think too we we also get nervous about just uh, how we interact in the world in general. And like I don't know, Will, have you been accused of being a Russian troll bot on the internet because you said something about Christianity or made a a fact check on someone? Because I have, and that's that's almost become like a dismissive now. Like, oh well, you're just a Russian troll. I'm like, no, I'm a real person. Um, I'm trying to tell you the truth and. Now, right, so the, the pendulum swings so far either way, and now, wow, we, I can't trust anything because it's a Russian troll. And I'm just like, no, I, that's my you kid. I called a Russian troll. All the time. That is crazy. All I've the never time. been called Russian troll. <laughs> you got to say like more spicy things. <laughs> it's like, do you, like yeah, do you slip like random Russian words in there every now and then? No, I just Please. literally disagree with something. I'll just jump into a, a news article and I'll say, ah, eh, fact check that. And they're like, nope. Uh, I see you, Russian troll. You're (laughs) typing, as I learned in my KGB Bible study. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Maybe I just have a lot of typos. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Maybe I got to start proofreading. So now a couple of things real quick. Uh, Now, we're obviously we're talking about tribalism and how tribalism can be negative because obviously you need to uh, subscribe to truth to some degree. Uh, and obviously you're going to be part of a tribe, so pick the best tribe or pick the right tribe, right? We talked about that. But now the question is, do you think Christians should be just apolitical then or and keep their faith out of politics and the public life? How do you think a Christian should try to balance these things? Because that's, that's usually the, there seems to be only two extremes. Either you're hyper-politicized as a church or as a Christian, or, oh, I'm just apolitical, man, just for the kingdom, woo, which is like, it sounds awesome, but it might not actually work out very well, uh, practically speaking. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Uh, I, let me just say no, I, I don't think, well, one, I don't think you are apolitical, uh, and I don't think you should be. Jesus called us to love our neighbors, and part of how we love our neighbors, at least in a democratic republic, is through the work of politics. That, that, that's an active way to, to love your neighbors. Um, if my neighbors, if I was living in 1962 and, and my neighbors couldn't vote because of their skin color, it would behoove me to love my neighbor by speaking out on their behalf, whatever it cost me. And that would be a very political act. 
And so, so no, I, I don't think we should be apolitical. But I, I want to get to the fundamentals of why. And, and the reason why is because the gospel itself is at root and some level political. Now, when I say political, I'm not saying partisan. I'm not saying that it's giving us a, a system of governance. Here's what I mean. Uh, in 9 BCE, there was an inscription which was made, and, and we found it now. And, and on this inscription, it's, it's celebrating the birth of Augustus Caesar, the Caesar who was born, or sorry, the Caesar who was ruling at the time that Jesus was born. And this inscription reads something to the effect of the gospel. So the good news, the gospel of Augustus Caesar, it goes on to call him the savior of the world. It calls him the Lord of humanity. It calls him the son of God. It calls him the hope of the world. Okay. And all this is there. And if you read the opening of Mark's gospel, it is a almost quotation of this inscription. And when you realize that, you begin to understand how radical it was for a Jewish rabbi to walk around uh, occupied Israel saying, actually, there's a different gospel of a different kingdom, of a different son of God, who is a different Lord, who is a different savior. And you wonder why they crucified this guy. <laughs> it's because it was political. The gospel, that phrase has always been, even in, in the Old Testament, it, it is a phrase that comes out of the linguistic field of politics. Good news was good news about a king ascending to a reign. And if the good news, according to Isaiah 52, is that your God reigns, you have a political gospel because it is talking about who's in charge here. And so that's, again, fundamentally why we have to be politically engaged as Christians is because we have a gospel which points us towards living out the repercussions or, 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 or the, the results of Jesus' kingship, his lordship, and saying, Jesus, your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. So I need to seek to make this place um, as much like heaven as I can, and I'm going to have to do that through uh, the political process. Uh, you know, it's a different question how we do that, as you're asking, and I think it's a fantastic question, um, but that, that would be where I would start. Right. Well, I mean, I even think of that in uh, Revelation, right? Uh, and depending on what someone's eschatology might be here or there, but as, like Revelation straight up is basically saying, yeah, it's using Zeus imagery to because yes. Zeus was considered the the king of all of Olympia, right? The highest of all the gods. It's using like Zeus imagery to describe Jesus, <laughs> and it, it, he's saying essentially, "Hey, look who's actually the real chief in charge." And mm -hmm. guess what? That what he said, what he says is right and wrong is actually what's right and wrong. You know, you are <laughs> so repent and believe for his word is a sword and a fire that and it's just so a lot of times uh, the, the apolitical thing, like you're right, I don't it doesn't hold up biblically, which that's why we have to be so committed to truth as Christians, because we should be politically engaged. Also, it's our social responsibility to be politically engaged because we're in a constitutional republic, so we ought to be. Yeah, we're self-governed. <laughs> right, yeah. So, and like I said, it's a way to love your neighbor, being engaged. But also because how else can I help people navigate the world and learn how to live a, a life that is pleasing before God, that is righteous in the path of the righteous, if I don't know anything politically because politics, whether people want to admit it or not, politics and morality often cr cross paths a lot. And so you have to know how to navigate that. Um, and if you disagree with somebody, um, like actually, okay, so you know how you were talking earlier um, about how you use the example of like the crazy left that pushes somebody more and more into the far right echo chamber, right? Like nationalism of sorts. Uh, yeah. I think of it in the opposite direction. 
Westboro Baptist Church. We know them. It's notorious, right? Then there's the crazy uh, fundamentalists who are just like, hey, you know what? All gay people suck. And that's their worldview, right? Gay people suck. We should throw them out. Um, I've heard somebody literally say we should line them up against a wall and shoot them. I've heard that come out of somebody's mouth. And it's horrible. And it's horrific. And you're like, no, what is wrong with you people uh, to say such things? But then what ends up happening? Somebody who's a Christian who's empathetic hears that. And they go, whoa, I don't like that. So what do they do? Well, those are conservative Christians who take the Bible seriously. We're unapologetically biblical, even though that's not a biblical thought process they have at all, right? But they hear that, they go, I want nothing to do with that. So they shove all those conservative folks away. Then what do they find? These people who say we love and accept everyone, we believe in Jesus, and they swing over here, now they're over in the left. So the way the left can push someone to the extreme right is the same way that the right can push people to the extreme left. So you have to be committed to truth and and resist, and I say it all the time, resist the pendulum swing. Resist yes. the pendulum <laughs> swing. Because people hear something they don't like and just jump completely off board and into the other. It's like, no, study it out. And if you have to reform your tribe from within, you can do that. You know, mm-hmm. but you don't don't pendulum swing. So anyway, sorry, that's a tangent, but it's just one of those things where I'm, I've noticed that where uh, we've had I've had many conversations where I feel like half my job as a as a minister has been working with people who have been disenchanted by the church or people who have been hurt by some extreme uh, conservative groups and lumping that as all Christianity, and that's been half my ministry is just bringing people, those types of folks back yeah. into the fold. Well, it's it's an ironic cost of of the way that. Uh, social media and and just media in general these days flattens locality uh, we, we, we now all kind of live in this weird global world and the cost is that when that crazy uh, Christian nationalist dude who has a book that you know is saying that interethnic marriage isn't always sinful but most of the time it is um, when he's out there spouting that stuff, I don't know this dude. I don't live in the same state as this dude. I don't come from any version of Christianity like this dude, okay? But because social media flattens locality and makes us all just seem as though we're coming from one place, him and me are, you know, to to the person on the, on the progressive left are, are just inches apart from one another. <laughs> right. In fact, he might be the true rep. He's probably what you really think if I got you, you know, uh, with a beer in a room where you're saying your honest <laughs> thoughts. And that, that's what social media and that, that's what this media environment does. It, it, it doesn't allow for nuance and different positions. And like you said, the temptation, of course, is the pendulum swing when you hear and you meet a dude insane like that dude is and, and say, oh, well, I'm, I'm out entirely. I'm going to deconstruct and I'm, I'm going out the back door. Well, uh, yeah, and that's because, um, like, for example, I remember that same exact story where flat out locality. You're absolutely right. And here I am a Christian minister. My wife is Korean. I'm in an interethnic uh, marriage. I'm in an inter- interracial marriage. And I heard that as like, and I can't tell you how many times I, one of my favorite things is I'll be accused of if I'm just saying, hey, you know, if I'm quoting that Harvard study we mentioned earlier, or I'm quoting other things like that, hey, that's not actually the narrative. It's not what it is. I'll instantly be called a racist. And I find it, and it's, I find it almost delicious. I can honestly say that because I'm like, my wife is literally Korean. My brother is Honduran. My brother-in-law who lives with me is Guatemala. Like, what do you mean? I, I, I'm like the <laughs> only white dude in my home. <laughs> and when they um, double down on that accusation, it's it's just glorious oh, because 
They will. They, they will just say even more ridiculous things. The, the, the most ridiculous one is usually this. You're hiding behind your wife's race. You're hiding behind it. And I'm like, no, I'm just saying that I have absolute proof right here in my own life that I'm not a racist. But again, if that is what you think, because you saw some crazy Christian guys say that, uh, who claim to be Christian, who claim to be biblical, that inter-ethnic relations are bad, and you just flatten that out, say that's Christian Christianity, so therefore, Christian says that, Christians be racist, as opposed to Christians have been disagreeing with each other since the very first century, bro. Like, we've all disagreed for ages. Yeah. <laughs> we have, Trust yeah. me, we have creeds that argue with each other. <laughs> mm. um, anyway, so uh, with, without having to chase too many of those uh, rabbit trails any further, but it's, it is fun. But uh, one of the things, uh, real quick, uh, I, have, I really have two more questions I want to ask. Do you have anything you want to no, ask after those two? Okay. So the, my next question is, is how can Christians pledge their allegiance to Jesus over their political party? Hmm. I, I, I think the answer to that question is going to be different for every person. Uh, but I'll just I'll start with myself and and my co-host and co-author comes from from the other side. So <laughs> we bring we bring our own stories. I'll share my own. In 2008, uh, that was actually the year after I became a Christian. I'm 19 and it's a presidential election, Barack Obama. And I was no big fan of George W. Bush. I thought that he uh, made a wreck of our country. We we're in an unnecessary war. I couldn't believe the militarism of the American army as a Christian. I found it offensive. Um, I, I thought that the poor were doing poorly because we're in the middle of this housing crisis that there were the housing bubble bursting. And all of this is just telling me, you know, this guy doesn't get it. And so uh, Barack Obama actually came to my university and, and gave a speech. And I remember walking down the street to hear him speak and I'm walking with my friends and we're just, I mean, we are revved up. You know, this is, this is hope. This is change. This is what's going to make the world a better place. And I was so proud to get in that voting booth and put my big fat vote towards Barack Obama. And then I watched what happened over the next four years. And I came to the very quick uh, realization that the person I elected didn't do anything that I could really see to affect the lives of the homeless people in my community. Didn't really do anything to affect uh, the warfare that I was concerned about. Didn't really do much of anything to affect much of the things that I thought were issues in the previous presidency. And what it taught me in the moment was that uh, politics are important. They are not all encompassing. Politics are important, but it turns out they affect far less than you think. And, and what I actually really learned was that what we do locally what we do in our local politics, in our local cities, how, how we, what we do on our school boards, what we do with the local charities, what we do to welcome the refugees in our cities, what, what we do to care for the home, that's politics. That is politics. And you know what? Most of those organizations could care less who you vote for. And if you want to see transformation in your city and in your town, you get invested in those places. One of the things I'm most proud of about our church is if you're if you're getting out of prison, there's a good chance the first person you meet who's going to help you take your next step is someone who goes to our church. Hmm. If you're a refugee coming from who knows where to Colombia, there's a very good chance the first person that you will talk to is someone who goes to our church. If you're a single mom, you're living out of your car, and you're just trying to figure out how to get one step forward, there's a very good chance that the first person you talk to will be a person from our church. That is politics that is living out the kingdom 
And it does not matter who you vote for in those instances. And so if we could just stop telescoping all of our attention to what's happening in the federal horse race and being political hobbyists and instead take all of that energy and pour it into serving and loving our local community, what a difference could we make? And so that, that how do you give your allegiance to Jesus? That would be the first thing I would say is maybe stop reading the news so much. Maybe stop worrying so much. Maybe take a sabbatical from, from political news and go serve somewhere where you're actually going to do some good in someone's life. And you'll realize that's the political mojo. That's the stuff that God really wants you to be doing. Um, and, and, you know, it, if someone can't tell me, that's an incredibly conservative message <laughs> at its root. It's subsidiarity. It's a notion that you're going to change. You will change more where you're at. And, and I think it's something that Jesus really created in the Christian community when he called us to love uh, those who are in our neighborhood, who are different from us, who have less than us. And, and when we do that, we, we not only love our neighbors, but I think we draw people to the goodness and to the beauty of Christ. Absolutely. Uh, that's one of the things that I am so proud about in my church as well. They have so many things that we, we do things like for Grace's Table, for the less unfortunate. We do, we're constantly mm -hmm. doing what this drive, that drive. How can we help with this? How, who's engaged in that? Hey, and we need more churches that do that because I have, honestly, I can tell you this right now. When I stopped uh, only focusing on all this, like I said, telescoping, this is a good, this is a good adjective. Um, when I stopped telescoping so much, I started just caring about my community around me. And I think you, you, you're the same way because you and I are both like you were talking. You've talked before how you lived in a bubble too for a while. Oh yeah, very uh, much so. And it's like <laughs> once once you start stop telescoping, you start realizing I can make an impact here. Because guess what? Washington doesn't care about like the the dude in the Oval Office doesn't care about your vote. He doesn't know you. Um, I remember when I was at uh, seminary, uh, I went to a very crazy Baptist seminary for a while. Uh, and uh, remember, King James only is crowd, okay? Hellfire and Brimstone type. And I was told uh, by one of the people there that I had to do everything, all, all these crazy rules that they had, and some were just insane, and some were just straight invasions of privacy, because, quote, that pastor is my spiritual authority. And I was like, that <laughs> man doesn't even know my name. And that was at a church of about 3,000 people. And just like, you want to say he's my authority when he doesn't even know my name? And so it's kind of the same thing where it's like, you're putting all your faith and hope in some people in, uh, in a Senate, in a, in a federation, and judges of a house. Like, that's what you're putting your faith and trust in? Like, they don't know your name, bro. But you know what? Yep. People in your local community do. They know your name. And you know what? You know Jesus' name and he knows yours. So mm. perhaps that is a little bit more important and should deserve more of your time and attention than these other things that are really superfluous in the large scheme of things. Well, it's like really fulfill the Great Commission, which is going to start in your community, those that are surrounding you. And then you bring them into your church, and then you actually be the church. Like, actually be the church. You bear their burdens. I, I've i had meetings with people in the church with, with extreme issues going on, and it's like, yeah, how do I walk with this with you? How do I tell you about my experiences that were similar, and you can draw wisdom from me, and how can I just 
listen to you and, and bear your emotions and bear your struggles with you. That's literally what we're supposed to, that's what James is talking about. And mm-hmm. I think we've, we've moved past that. I like the, I like the word telescoping because yeah, we're all like, yeah, forget everything around us. We're just going to look over there. And I just, it really just matters what, who's present every four years or, or what national news event that happened and how we characterize it in the, in the, in the most politically charged way possible. And I think it's really distracted us from the mission of the church and, that's why we're having church splits. That's why we're taking mm-hmm. that tension and then we're turning it at it, the very people that we're supposed to be bearing their burdens. So yeah. I appreciate yeah, what you're saying. A, there's a character in Charles Dickens' novel, uh, Bleak House, I believe, uh, named Miss Jellyby. And Miss Jellyby uh, is living in this house with all of these children uh, who she is a tremendous neglector of. And uh, she's also, though, deeply in love with orphans in Africa. And she takes all of her money, all of her time, and is just constantly sending her money and her letters and all this stuff off to Africa. While the children living in her house, she is an absolute tyrant to. She's unkind to them. She ignores them. She neglects them. And I think that the average political hobbyist is often a little bit like Miss Jelly B when it comes to their care and concern for their community. They're sending a lot of money and a lot of energy to a different city, to a different place. But if you looked at how they're uh, treating the poor and the needy in their own community, they've been neglected. That's actually, yeah, it's a great example of how, of, of how that works. Talk about uh, missing the forest for the trees. <laughs> uh, yes. So, um, and then I, so I guess real quick, uh, we always end our interviews, at least we try to, re- what we remember, which is, most of the time, but sometimes we forget. I always like to ask uh, the same question, uh, and you, that's kind of what this entire interview has been about. So it might be a little redundant, but whatever, we'll do it anyway. Tradition cannot be questioned. <laughs> so, uh, Patrick, what do you think? Uh, how do you think that your guys' ministry, or, and especially your book, Truth Over Tribe, can help unite a divided body? Yeah, it's it's a great it's a great question. I mean, I, I think the book. I hope it will unite people. Um, maybe, I, maybe our book will convince some people. I think the people who read this book are probably already concerned about division and, and unity in the church, to be frank. Um, more importantly, I hope it gives them a vision. I hope it gives them a vision of, of how they can love their neighbor who is uh, politically tribalized, how, how they can uh, do things that, that will bring people together who are far apart, which looks like listening. It looks like admitting when you're wrong. It looks like showing kindness. It looks like radical generosity. You know, that, that'd be one of my huge prayers that so people will read this book and they say, you know, one way that I can win people who are uh, tribalized or people in the other tribe is, is, is radical, absolutely radical generosity. Um, our, our church that we, we like to do big giving campaigns throughout the year. Um, but several Easter's ago, I think it was actually the Easter of COVID if I remember correctly, uh, I got this wild hair with with my co-host, and I said, "What if we did something about medical debt in, in our in our city? Because medical debt is is a huge. If you have medical debt, it's almost impossible to find housing. It's almost impossible to get a job. The creditors will start hounding your family members to get the money from you. And so we partner with this group called RIP Medical Debt, and what they do is they they, they buy debt from banks." Um, and they buy debt of the debt of people who make anything under two times the poverty rate because those people are statistically totally unlikely to ever pay a dollar. The banks will sell them a dollar of debt for a penny. So for a penny, you can buy a dollar of another person's debt, if, if that makes sense. So wow. for $100, you can buy $1,000 worth of debt. And so we said, hey, to our church, 
let's cancel all of the debt in our city. Let's just give insanely generously. And we, we're going to cancel all the debt of every person in our city who makes under 2x the poverty line. And uh, to be honest, that goal was way, 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 way too small because the people just went nuts and they ended up giving enough money to cancel $43 million of medical debt in our state. It canceled the medical debt wow. of 33, 33 counties. And every one of those people, gay, straight, white, black, Latino, Asian, liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat, they, they all got the exact same letter, which said that your debt has been canceled in the name of Jesus. And they would call because they would figure it out just through the news. We didn't even put our church on it. They would just figure out through the news uh, who we were. And, and they would call and say, why did you do this for me? Like, I'm not a Christian. I've lived a terrible life. Or I'm not a, I don't like Christian, whatever it was. And we would just tell them the same thing. We'd go, well, yeah, 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 yeah. You don't, you're right. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Like, yeah, you don't deserve it. But neither did we. We didn't deserve yeah. it. And that's why we did this. And so when people ask me, like, well, what do I hope the book will do? Like, I hope every church in America finds some crazy way to bless their neighbors and give with radical generosity. Because when we did that, it, the tribal walls just fell down. It was like Jericho. I mean, they just slammed down. Because how can you not uh, want to be a part of a community? How can you not feel loved by a community that wants to give that generously? to you so you know that might be like an overly specific thing but that's what i just want people to have a vision for how they can be radically generous radically kind and and and, and change the narrative in their cities change the narrative in their schools about who christians are by, by doing that radical generosity and kindness again and again and again because i think that's what will ultimately not just end tribalism in the church but end tribalism which is destroying our country Absolutely. That's a, that's actually a really great idea. And that's the thing. It's like, you know what? If you want to stop tribalism, a great way to stop tribalism is showing love and compassion and being selfless. It's really hard for someone to hate the guy who's helping them and loving them through it <laughs> yeah. all. Like, really hard to hate. You know those people? You all know that person. That person you go, gosh, you're hard to be stay angry at. Like, I can't stay mad at you. And yeah. that's, that's, what, that's what Christians should be. Uh, goodness, I can't stay mad at you. So uh, annoying. Yeah, it's so annoying. Why are you just... <laughs> You're making me laugh because there was this hilarious story. We One of the ways our church got canceled by we a lot of organizations in our city was we're preaching through Genesis. We get to that you know uncomfy part about God creating male and female, and we did a sermon said hey there's two genders now the, the the goal of the sermon was yes god only created two genders but we still need to love our, our trans neighbors um we still need to show them kindness now doing that sermon got us way canceled by a lot of people uh but here's the funny part i i was i was spending time with someone and and she was so angry about the sermon just couldn't believe that we would you know say something like that from the pulpit could not believe it and she goes, you know what kind of church I want to go to? You know what kind of church I want to be a part of? That church that canceled all that medical debt. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I, just, I just stared at her. I was like, um, that this was awkward. <laughs> it's the same church. But it goes to your point. 
you can hate us all you want we will give you our money we will give you the shirt off our back we will give you our love we will give you our generosity we will give you our kindness we will give you our time we will give you our homes we will give you whatever you need because we love you and you can hate us however much you want to you can pull out your guns you can pull out your swords you can do whatever you want throw me in the furnace god will save me if he wants to my job is to prepare to die and to give of myself that's it yeah, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, right? That's the idea. <laughs> but that is that is actually hilarious. That is awesome. <laughs> but it goes to show that's uh, that's why I love like the, your guys' little like, uh, I don't know if it's a tagline or but basically the idea of like too conservative for the liberals, too liberal for the conservatives. Uh, and that <laughs> is just actually fantastic because that's kind of where I land all the time where I'm like, yep, I just angered those people. Oh, I angered those ones. And that kind of is a good way to tell, let you know that you're not hanging out in a two-party system that you're viewing the world through. Mm-hmm. It's showing that you're trying to really actually balance a biblical worldview. Now, granted, of course, it's ticking off everybody. Don't just run around trying to make people angry. <laughs> but you're trying to live as principally yeah. as possible. Like, I'm trying to be as biblical as possible and live these out. And if you're upsetting some people, well, guess what? That, that's okay. We were told the world's going to hate us anyway. So just carry on. Like yeah. I said, give that shirt off your back. Love your neighbor anyway, even if they hate you. Love your enemies. Even Jesus loved his enemies, right? So even when he was on the cross, when people were beating him, tearing him apart, tearing him apart literally with a cat of nine tails, whipping him, he loved them. And he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. He loved them, even those who hated him the most. And I think Christians need to remember to do that because so much is sometimes so easy. And man, I fall, I do fall into that. I I always joke around that. Uh, there's a you know you know a bumblebee, how petty they are. You cause them any form of discomfort, and they will sting you and kill themselves to cause you a mild amount of dis- discomfort for a couple of days. That is what a bumblebee will do. And here's the thing: is I relate to the bumblebee, right? I am that petty, like, I, and, and that is my flesh, right? So we have to constantly be fighting against that. But that is something that I definitely, I, I relate to. And that's why uh, every time I think of that, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's always just so just, ah, it just hits me right where I live. So, um, yeah, it's a reason why God tells us to love our enemies, because he does. And uh, I think we forget that sometimes. Well, Scripture says that when while we were... Uh, unrepentant and when we rejected it we were enemies of god so it's, and yet he still loves yep. us so mm-hmm. um anyway with that being said uh patrick what are the best ways for people to find you guys uh if they want to hear more from you yeah if you want to listen to the podcast truth over tribe if you want to buy the book truth over tribe again not very creative but it makes us easy to find check those out uh, i'm also on twitter patrick k miller underscore uh, I, I love interacting with people there. I, I do check my DMs, and I, I try to be a human on social media for for what it's worth. Uh, but if, please, you know, check out the podcast, check out the book. Um, but let me just say this: uh, you know, what you guys are doing is great, and I love that you're forming a community around this. And so, my my other encouragement would be: stay connected to your local church and stay connected to to these guys. Uh, because that's going to be something that I think God uses in your life to help you stay sane in an insane time. 
Right, absolutely. And again, no one here is saying you can't have thoughts or opinions. No one here is saying that you can't uh, be passionate about certain things. And you, everyone who knows, uh, is familiar with our platform knows that we encourage mental toughness. And you know, once in a while on Twitter, I'll just shoot something out to troll people. And people know I'm just messing and trolling. But it is something where I'll be like, hey, this is why I believe this. This is why. So you guys can see this is why I stand here. But at the same time, I'm not going to hate you if you disagree with me. Uh, let's have a normal adult core conversation and uh, you can do that and it is possible and um, sometimes we all fail at that but we that should always be the goal so anyway with that being said, guys, go follow Truth Over Tribe. These guys are awesome. I've really enjoyed our, my, our interaction with just Patrick alone. Maybe we could have your co-host on too sometime. It'd be fun. Uh, but if you guys haven't already, like and subscribe to the channel. But definitely go check out Truth Over Tribe. I will also be purchasing a copy of the book because I think that is just something that is worth having. Uh, and with that being said, Brian, do you have anything you want to say? I guess just look at Apple for uh, Patrick's one-star review of us coming up. We're looking <laughs> for something extra spicy and interesting. So. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you reminded me. I, I would have forgot I by the end of all this. Oh, I thanks, won't. man. It's going to be thanks. good. <laughs> if, you, if you do the one-star review, just make sure you roast Brian the most. I, I got enough people. I, I'm the, <laughs> since I'm the main talker in this, I get hated on the most. And Brian does not get hated on enough. So I need that to happen. <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Thank you guys so much for having me on the show. Really appreciate yeah, it, guys. Uh, so everyone, take care and God bless. All right. So anyway, um, so really, so how did your experience as leaders by the, as, uh, a, right. Well, it's right. Wow. Word vomit. Okay. So the, I happen to have been working a very long day that day when I came to your fine establishment, you are sure I'm going to, okay. Listen, you can't treat. Thank you. Good morning, sir. Okay. Let's go. You made a big mistake. Huge. There it is. All right. Ha. The, uh, the, wait, KJB and the KJ Bobble. Coincidence? <laughs> <KJB>. I think <laughs> not. Uh, sorry, oh, I come man. from a background of King James Onlyists, so that's why I was raising it. We so, mock them now. So I have some funny stories with King James Onlyists. Yeah, it's a good The authorized a, version a, people. Yeah, they'll instead of KJV, they'll call it the KJB because it's not a version; it's a the Bible. It's, it's the only, only Bible. one. So KJB, KJB. Uh. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. K you heard it here, folks. King James only is our commies. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so let's just keep that tribalism. Just keep, just to let everyone know that we're just being hypocritical right at this moment. Okay, yeah, so, fun. Self awareness is a good thing, guys. It's fun. Just a lot. Learn to have joke, crack jokes about yourself. Like, all right, okay. If you, if you let, stop taking yourself so seriously, it'll make a lot, life a lot easier. My wife doesn't take me seriously at all. You can ask her. Anyway. True. Um, ah, we're live. Oh, Brian, get back. back here. We got to wrap this up before we lose it. <laughs> if you wouldn't have been so long-winded, we'd already be done with it. <laughs> Shut up.